0: At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to do for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. A man was there, with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisee went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope.
1: Come on? Yeah, good. How's everybody doing this morning? We're glad uh, that you're here with us. Uh, this, this piece of scripture reminds me of a story that my sister's pastor tells of uh, his first job as a pastor. He had just come out of seminary. Uh, he was a real lively guy, real energetic guy, enjoyed life, enjoyed people. Uh, he also enjoyed wine uh, and he was known to have a glass of wine or two with dinner or out or, or, or whatnot. And uh, he had taken the job at the church and it was a more fundamental church and uh, Words started to get out, of course, you know how it does, and uh, people start to hear and talk. And uh, there's one lady in the church uh, who just thought uh, this, this is out of line. And so she sets up a meeting with the pastor. They sit down in his office, and she says to him, Drinking wine is unfit for a pastor. And he graciously hears, he listens, he's asking questions. Um, you know he asks her why and, and and that sort of thing, and so they talk for a little bit and he walks through uh, some scripture and shows where wine was uh, something to celebrate it was a, it was a festive thing uh, in scripture uh, he, he he goes straight to definitely like drunkenness without question as sin you know he, he's not leaving really room room for uh, error and misunderstanding there um, and then he finishes <clears throat> excuse me he finishes going to the when Jesus turns the water into the wine at the wedding feast. And he goes back to the Greek and he shows her that the wine is indeed wine, that the people were drunk, you know, and you don't get drunk off of not wine. And um, So once they're kind of finished with the discourse, he follows up and he, you know, and, and the whole time is being super gracious, of course, and he says to her, he says, so, so what do you think? You know, what, what are your thoughts on this? Is this? I mean, where are you? She sighs, sits back in the chair, says, you know, Jesus should have known better, gets up and walks out. <laughs> this is a true story. When I read this passage, sometimes I'm reminded that the systems and the routines and the structures that we put in place for us, for our good and to point us to Christ, in pursuing those things, we actually miss Jesus. So uh, I want to look uh, at, the, at, at this passage, verses uh, 1 to 21 and see uh, what's happening here with the Pharisees. But I'm going to pray if you guys will join me in praying. Oh, Father, you're good. You teach us so much through your word. And I thank you because of Jesus that we have uh, the Holy Spirit who uh, is the real teacher that, that changes our hearts, that does a work. And I just pray and trust that you're already in each of our hearts just changing us, drawing us closer to you. I pray that uh, my words would be uh, glorifying and all pointing to Jesus that Uh, you would be uh, lifted high. You would be made uh, great and that we would be just drawn close to you. Your word says that uh, our nearness to you is actually our good. Uh, And so we just pray uh, for nearness. We pray for a drawing near and uh, your word would just change us. And we thank you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you guys want to get back out your Bibles, if you've put them up, uh, let's look at Matthew 12. Uh, I want to take a couple minutes. There's, there's essentially three scenes here in, in, in this section. Uh, the first scene is Jesus in the grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples. Uh, the second scene is Jesus healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And then this third scene is actually not, it's different from those. It's actually Matthew uh, quoting from uh, an, an Isaiah prophecy about Uh, the one who would come, the Messiah. And so our first scene, Jesus in the grain fields. The second scene, Jesus moves into the synagogue. And then the third, Matthew is saying, hey, here's what's going on, guys. And he lays out this uh, quote. So let's uh, take a couple minutes and uh, we're gonna walk through uh, the first two scenes, all right? So what's going on in the first scene? Uh, Jesus goes into the grain fields uh, on the Sabbath. You know, Sabbath for the Jewish people was a day of rest. It was a day which you set all things aside uh, to be refreshed, to be pointed towards your need uh, for God, and to be uh, re- be refreshed and reminded of Him. So on the Sabbath, it was against regulations for the people to uh, to pluck grains. It was uh, against the Sabbath re- regulations to work. And so his disciples, walking through a field, begin to pluck grains and to eat it. Uh, his Pharisees come. Uh, the Pharisees come up to him, and the Pharisees were actually a group of religious leaders during that time. And they approach Jesus, and they're saying, hey, you're missing it. You're not, you're not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. Um, and uh, Jesus responds uh, with two really interesting counterpoints. And uh, when I first started studying it, these points really threw me off. It took a, a long time to really <laughs> kind of see what Jesus is doing, but it's really clever, and it's really neat. So Jesus goes into the grain fields. Pharisees come up and say, hey, you can't be doing this. And then Jesus responds. Jesus says in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which, is not, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. This is actually Jesus recalling a story uh, from 1 Samuel 21. And then he goes on in verse, verse 5 and says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? The second example in Jesus' counterpoint, he's, he's returning to Numbers 28 in the Old Testament. And in Numbers, it required the priests to actually make sacrifices in the temple on the Sabbath, which then you know, that means that they actually had to work on the Sabbath. So he's, he's saying, hey, look, these guys, they work on the Sabbath, and somehow they're not guilty of violating this law. So then this leads into Jesus' three major claims in verses 6, 7, and 8. And... Uh, So let's look. In 6, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So we just saw in verse 5, right, that the temple priests are protected from breaking the Sabbath law because the temple is greater than the Sabbath. The temple is greater than the Sabbath. And then Jesus follows up by saying, and I am something greater than the temple is here, and that's me. That's a pretty wild and bold statement especially if you know a whole lot about Jewish uh, culture or history. If you do, you know that the temple is going to represent the entire Jewish religious structure and system. This was, this was the crux. This was the center of their entire establishment. As a matter of fact, the first temple is going to be built and is, uh, is going to host the Ark of the Covenant and was a place to where all the Jewish people would come together and worship. Inside of this uh, temple uh, was a place called the Holy of Holies. This is the most innermost and sacred area of the ancient temple and was considered to actually be the dwelling place of the divine presence. The Holy of Holies was accessible only to the high priests, and on, uh, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he's permitted to enter this square, windowless structure, uh, and he burns incense, sprinkles sacrificial animal blood, And by the act, the high priest will atone for his sins and and those of the priesthood. I would say that's a pretty significant thing, right? I mean, this is literally the very culmination of everything that they believe and hold true. And not only that, it was literally the house and dwelling place of God. So just so you know how crazy and wild the statement that Jesus makes is, the people in the temple, they're, they're safe because this is more important than this. And I... greater than the place that hosts the presence of God. Now, later on, if you know much about your Old Testament history, uh, you know that the temple was destroyed. And just recently, up up before what Jesus is doing here, uh, there's a new temple, a second temple uh, that gets rebuilt. Uh, And this is going to take 46 years to build. So if you think about, I mean, we thought trying to get in this place, getting renovated was a long time. And we're like, hey, this is great. This place is great. I mean, can you think 46 years and there's no bulldozers, there's no backhoes, there's no tractors or cranes. And we're talking about building something with some pretty primitive tools. I mean, so this, is, this is a significant structure. And you got to think the sentimental value, I mean, of the first temple. And now they've rebuilt the second temple. And it's like, yes, here is our temple again. It's back in place. We're back in business. So Jesus declaring to the Pharisees that one greater than the temple is here and it's him is a pretty bold uh, and wild statement. So let's look down at verse 7 and see how he kind of like follows this up here. In verse 7 he says, And if you have known, had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. You may or may not recall this, this phrase... Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is actually a follow-up conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees uh, from Matthew chapter 9 that Ben preached on. Uh, And In this scenario, Jesus is reclining in Matthew 9 with some tax collectors uh, and some sinners, and the Pharisees reclining, like, having dinner with them, uh, and the Pharisees come up. I'm assuming it's the same group of Pharisees since, like, he says what he says here, and then later, we'll we'll get that in a second, sorry. Um, But he's reclining, tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees come up and question him. uh, Why do you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Um, And he responds to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So let's see the parallel, right? Earlier, they come up to him clearly not understanding who he is, that he's greater than the temple, clearly not understanding that he's the son of God. And they say to him, why are you doing this? And he says to them, go and learn what this means. And here in verse 12, we see kind of a, a continuing of the conversation. And he goes on and says, if you had learned, then you would not have. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're picking up on this. Uh, here and earlier when he says, have you not read in the law? where?" I mean, these are pretty bold uh, and maybe even insulting comments that he's making. Have you not read in the law? That would be like asking a medical student. Have you not taken anatomy? I mean, we're talking some some basic stuff. Do you not know basic human anatomy? Um, So and then in verse 8, let's look down. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 8 is kind of the summation of what I've been saying. It sums up his supremacy over the temple, explains the innocence of his disciples. Jesus, again, has claimed to be greater than the temple. He's now charged the Pharisees with not getting the law and then claiming that he is actually Lord and has authority over their Sabbath day. So scene two. Let's look over at verse nine. What's going on here? I think there's a little bit, uh, there's a lot going on, but there's a little bit less commentary, so we'll move through it pretty quick. So he moves on from there, where? The grain fields, right? He's out in the grain fields, the scene happens with the the, uh, Pharisees, and then he's going to move into the synagogue. And in the synagogue was a man who had a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, are going to ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now this isn't just like a friendly question, like, hey, teacher, you know, what is you know, the answer to this question? Matthew writes in here that the whole purpose of them asking was to actually accuse him, to bring a charge against him. He says to him, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretches it out, and it's restored, healthy like the other. Now, it's real easy when we study Scripture to think like, I don't know if it is for you, it is for me. When I'm looking at it, when I'm reading, it's real easy to be like, Hey, this stuff happened a long time ago. Uh, but, but I want you know, the Bible, if you understand literature, it, is not meant, it was not written as fiction. I mean, I want you to consider the wildness of telling someone with a withered hand to open their hand and it restores back to normal. I mean, this is bizarre stuff. This isn't like, oh yeah, we're going to church and we're hearing about Jesus who did all these great things. No, this is crazy. The man said, open your hand, and a withered hand grew back out right? This is, this is wild stuff. Verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out, conspired against him, how to destroy him. The Greek there for destroy means kill. They walk away from this scenario and they go, how can we kill this guy? Which seems a little extreme, right? I mean, like he's just by, bi- I mean, it's like not coming to church, right? It's like your second time skipping out on church and people are getting together like, hey, how can we kill this guy? But actually in the Jewish law, If you violated the Sabbath, your first first violation, you actually got a warning. And then if you went and violated it again, it was actually means for stoning, for death. And so it's interesting, I just find it interesting that they went out and they found Jesus and his disciples doing something on the Sabbath, trying to bring a charge against him. He obviously defends himself pretty well. And then they go and they make another charge against him. And then they're going off and they're conspiring Uh, to get rid of him. They obviously don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is or they wouldn't be conspiring to kill him. Then uh, Jesus' withdrawal. Jesus is now aware that they're conspiring to kill him. He withdraws from the place. Many follow him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And there's the close of our second scene. And real quick, I'm just going to give you, we're going to talk about the scene three, the Isaiah prophecy at the end, Uh, but I think it's really just because I'm a nerd and I think it's cool. Uh, This actually is the longest sustained quote of the Old Testament in the entire book of Matthew here in Isaiah. Pretty cool to me. All right, so uh, one one major theme that I want to focus on, right? And it's not just because it's the one major theme in this text. I think it is kind of the, the, the crux. I think it is the centerpiece. But... But I want to focus on a theme, and that's why I love that we're going through the book of Matthew, that we're taking big chunks. We can see this thing as a narrative, as a story. We can see where things are happening consistently through rather than just seeing very small snippets and then trying to draw some propositional truth from it. We can see that a conversation was happening with Jesus and the Pharisees. He says, go learn. Then later on, he's going to say, if you would have learned, you wouldn't be doing this, and then other places in uh, the Gospel of Mark and then even later in Matthew, Jesus is going to unpack this a little bit more. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, uh, it throws me off a little bit. I don't know. I was talking to Kelly about this uh, this week, and I was like, I don't know. I just I can't put feet to it. Like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Like, at first take, I'm like, is, does God, is he saying he wants to be merciful to us and not us be sacrificial? Is he saying that, like, He wants us to be merciful to other people. Is he saying that, I mean, because if you sacrifice, you're sacrificing to God. Is he saying he wants us to be merciful to him? Like, I I don't know, that just kind of threw me a little, uh, uh, threw me off. But if you remember, when Ben preached on Matthew 9, he actually showed us that this is a quote that Jesus takes from the book of Hosea. And so if you go back to Hosea chapter 6, uh, the prophet is like laying out an indictment on... Israel and Judah. Essentially saying that they've turned their worship into a prophet for themselves, they've turned their religions, religious systems into systems of exploitation, and he is like speaking condemnation and destruction like over this group. And this is what Jesus is quoting here out of that chapter to the Pharisees. The Hosea 6.6 rendering uh, helps me a little bit more put some feet to it and really see what's happening. It says for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings. The difference here is steadfast love and mercy. And if I mean you get down to the root of it they mean the same thing but the idea of like God's like saying Jesus is saying to these Pharisees you don't understand what God wants isn't a bunch of sacrifice what God wants is steadfast love. Now that makes a lot more sense to me and that clears it up for me. And I hope it does for you. And if you want to unpack, you can look at what Jesus says a little bit later. Uh, in Mark 12, 29 to 34, Jesus is asked by some scribes what the greatest commandment is, right? We all, we all know this. If you've been in church for any time, you're familiar with this text. But I think it's, it's worth uh, reading. Just, just to help us clarify the idea of I desire mercy or steadfast love and not sacrifice. Jesus responds to the scribes who are asking him, He says the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 32, the scribe responds to Jesus and says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, that there's no one other beside him, and to love him with all the heart and all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus, I love this, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now I want you to see the drastic difference between his response to the Pharisees and his response to the scribe. The Pharisees had ulterior motives. They were doing something else, and Jesus responds essentially, quoting a prophecy, saying, you don't understand your own law, and I'm actually quoting first from Scripture that is speaking condemnation over you and what you're doing. And then to this scribe, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I think that's significant. So, for us, as we look at this and we can see, like, God's heart is clearly, He does not want a group of people. And you can go anywhere in Scripture, beginning to end. You can look at Isaiah's prophecies. You can look at the Psalms. You can look at the letters that Paul writes. You can look at the Gospels, and you will see one consistent theme a God who says, I don't want your things. I don't need your things. I want your heart. He is not after us to do a bunch of good things, He's not after us to make great sacrifices. He is after our hearts. He's after our hearts. So let's look at what the difference between sacrifice and steadfast love is. Think about it. Sacrifice is temporary, right? We make a sacrifice. It's temporary. It's to get somewhere. It's to keep going. It's to get past something. And sacrifice in and of itself isn't actually bad. It's actually a good thing. God actually institutes the sacrificial system. It's good for us to sacrifice. It's healthy for us to sacrifice for the glory of God, for the good of other people. It's good for us to tithe. It's good for us to be generous givers. It's good for us to obey Scripture and lay down our lives. Jesus is going to call us to sacrifice. There's no question about that. Sacrifice is good. It's good for us to give up our time to share the gospel with people. It's good for us to give time to serve one another. Again, don't, don't hear anything different. Sacrifice is good. But sacrifice... Separated from love, sacrifice in and of itself is actually super dangerous. I was thinking about it this week, and I thought what, 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 is, what, what is our real motive in like sacrificing right like if we 're talking about religious sacrifice, if we want to make some sort of sacrifice I, I, and I came up with two ideas, and I think that one, sacrifice can be a way that we uh, Sorry, sacrifice can be a way that we pay God to get somewhere. Either that somewhere is maybe to him, maybe we don't understand the gospel, maybe we don't believe the gospel, and we think that we have to measure up and make really good religious sacrifices and give lots of good things up in order to get ourselves right before God so that he'll be happy with us or at least willing to put up with us. Sacrifice can be a way for us to try to make up for our wrongs. Or, and this one is uh, really scary to think about, uh, maybe it's a means by which we try to use God to get somewhere else. Maybe it's a way that we make deals, we make, hey, I'll do this if you can do this for me, God. And the real danger is there is, I don't know if you've ever seen a puppet, but usually the puppeteer holds the strings and the strings are attached to the puppet. Make that analogy for yourself. And what, you know, for us... Do we make sacrifices so that we can try to, like, play puppet with God and get Him to do what we want Him to do? So sacrifice in and of itself is dangerous. But steadfast love, contrasting, is real. Steadfast love is long-term. It's steadfast love is something that shapes us. It forms us. I don't know about if you have family or you're married, but you know that steadfast love for someone or something totally leads you to sacrifice. It totally reshapes the way that we think and the way that we function. Think about the loving relationships that you're in now or that you've been in, right? They're not shaped by how much you can do for one another, at least if they're like healthy relationships. Your relationships are shaped by love for one another, right? Not on how well you can do things or how much you can get done. Steadfast love is long-suffering, which is actually uh, mercy. Um, It's real, like I said, it is sacrificial. And, I mean, think about it. Just do me a favor. Think about it in your own life. You know the difference between some, when somebody's like making a sacrifice to serve you and when they're doing something motivated by steadfast love. Husbands, wives, right? I mean, you know when, like, when somebody's doing something just to get by or to get somewhere. You know, our friends, our family, you know what it's like to be invited to a party that you found out about that you weren't originally invited to and somebody's willing to like sacrifice you know, so that you can actually get there and be there but you weren't invited because somebody loved you and really wanted you there? That sucks. That's never happened to me, though. Um, (laughs) I wish that were true. All right. um, I think Jesus wants more for us in our relationship with him. He wants more from us than for us to just be sacrificial people. I think he wants us to be sacrificial people, but I think he wants us to be sacrificial people that sacrifice because our hearts are for him and love him. So back to the temple and the Sabbath. The entire function of this temple and Sabbath, this religious system was to actually point people, if you understand the Scriptures, if you understand the New Testament and how they interpret and understand the Old Testament, you know that the entire function of the Jewish system was to point people to God and to deal with their brokenness. It was was for them to come under God, to draw near for their good and the good of the people who are around them, and for the joy and the glory of God. This is where God's people were reminded of His presence, of His goodness, His faithfulness. They were meant to demonstrate God's mercy and his steadfast love for us, ultimately serving to point us to the one who would come, the Messiah, the one who would come, who would actually fulfill the law, and who would restore the brokenness of the world. So, in this context, Jesus is actually saying to the Pharisees, the temple was insufficient, your law was insufficient. Your efforts at righteousness are insufficient, and if you understood this, if you would have gone and learned what I told you previously, you would have known that I came to bring healing to the sick, but you you believe in your own sufficiency, that you are well, that you are not in need of a physician, and I'm telling you that you have misunderstood the law and the prophets, and you have no clue what the temple is really for. The Pharisees had gotten so bogged down in the law that they couldn't see Jesus, the one promised by the law. Think about that. They got so focused on their system and their structure and their way of doing things that they missed the object of what those things were about. I mean, Jesus was walking through healing people, casting out demons, and they, they missed it. They thought, I mean, they, 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 they just didn't get it. They believed the temple was of utmost importance, that their religious performance and sacrifice could earn them favor with God. But they failed to realize that Jesus, the one who is coming, is greater than the temple. He was coming to make us the temple, to deliver the presence of God into us, that we would now be the temple wherever we went. They missed it. So how does this relate to our series? I don't know if you guys have been here, uh, but we've been in the middle of a series called A Leader Worth Following a leader worth following. So what does this have to do with a leader worth following? Well, in chapter 11 that Reggie preached on, John the Baptist asks, sends people to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Are you the one who's going to restore all things? Are you going to take back the kingdom and make an an, an eternal throne? Jesus responds and says, yes. He quotes some Old Testament prophecy and says, yes. Then to his disciples in chapter 11, he actually tells them, like, hey, I am the Son of God, and no one knows God, or no one knows the Father except the Son, and who the Son makes himself known known to. Then, to the Pharisees here in chapter 12, he tells them that he's greater than their temple, than their religious system. He's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's raising people from the dead. And I love C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis says, I mean, if we, if we look at this and we, we can say, okay, this isn't fiction. It's not written as fiction. If you understand literature, you know this book isn't written about fiction. You don't include the details like you do in fiction. Um, he says you have three options to respond to Jesus at this point, right? I don't know if you've ever read, but he says either you have, you, I mean, if you're going to deal with Jesus, at this point, you have to either acknowledge that Jesus is either a liar, he's either crazy, he's a lunatic, or he actually is who he says he is. There's not, there's not a fourth option. He's saying this guy who's claimed to be the Messiah that says that God's presence is dwelling, he is remaking the temple. I don't know if you know, but in John, he actually tells them that I will destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. He's either, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or he, says he, or he is who he says he is. And, and I would say that if he, says, if he is who he says he is, then this piece of scripture has everything to do with the series that we're in, a leader worth following. If if he is actually who he says he is, then I would say that he's not only a leader worth following, but he's actually the only leader worth following. If this is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, he is not only a leader worth following, but he is actually the only leader worth following. So that scene three I was telling you about. Listen to what Matthew says about him. will hope. I found a summary of this, of this third scene that I'm just going to read that I just thought was uh, super good. Um, so just, just tune in and hear what this is actually saying here. This text is saying that Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the spirit anointed, divinely chosen, and beloved servant, that in the short term through his ministry, he will demonstrate not resistance to, but withdrawal from hostility until the appointed time comes for him to die. Meanwhile, he treats the outcast and vulnerable with tenderness and gentleness, but also through his life, death, and resurrection, he will demonstrate his conquest over death. He will bring victory and justice for all the people of the world, which will entail salvation for those who acknowledge his lordship and condemnation for those who do not. To me, this sounds like a leader we're following, and if you believe that he is who he says he is, then he's really the only leader we're following. There's a lot of promises that we have from leaders right now about how things will be better, how things will change. And I just want to remind everyone that we have one leader that we follow. His name is Jesus, and he does and has demonstrated his ability to make things new, to give us a better future. He's actually dealt with our greatest enemy. No matter the economic system or political structure that we have, we still have to deal with death, right? I mean, there's still an end, and Jesus... Here says, I have dealt with this. So, just like the lady I mentioned uh, at the beginning who approaches her pastor, uh, and it's somewhat of a funny story, you know, it makes me laugh when I think about it. Um, but just like her, I think that we can pursue uh, our routines, I think we can pursue our, stru- our, you know, our systems, or even our devotional time, and we can actually make those things of such great importance misunderstand that they're actually meant to point us to Jesus, we can elevate them up here, and we can pursue those things and totally miss Jesus. Consider for yourself, how, how does this play out for you? Is your relationship with Christ, is it motivated by sacrifice or steadfast love? I thought of some, a couple questions that may help us kind of like answer this, right? Do you find yourself feeling the need to try to make up for the things you do wrong with God? Do you find yourself whenever you fail, whenever you walk in sin, whenever you walk in disobedience, do you, do you try to like, oh, I'm going to make it right, I'm going to do these five things and I'll never do this again and, 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 and you know, I'm promising and I'm going to get accountability partners and I'm going like, to spend more time praying? Is that us? If so, I would charge that we don't really believe the gospel. Another question. Do you miss or do you sacrifice and try to expect and expect something in return from God? Are you the puppeteer who's trying to string God along to get what you want? If so, there's good news. If so, there's good news. Hebrews 4:14 to 16 reads: Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in, ta- in our time of need. I can tell you this as we draw near, you will be transformed. And what he does to us, he wants to do through us. And our families, and our missional communities, and our church, and our neighborhood, where we're called to live out on mission. Let's draw near. Let's draw near and be transformed. Yesterday I was at uh, Buena Cafe, uh, just kind of had planned to finish the sermon up a little bit and just uh, hang out and get some coffee. It's pretty good coffee. Uh, And I was sitting there, and uh, some guys walked in uh, from Crawford Avenue, uh, and we got to talking. Uh, Crawford Avenue is a Baptist church in, um, in Harrisburg. They just moved out from Evans down into Harrisburg, and uh, they want to see the gospel uh, reshape um, the neighborhood that they're in. Uh, and we got to talking, and it came up that, hey, we have a missional community over on Central Avenue, and we want to see the same thing. Like, we want to see Jesus move and change lives. And uh, we got to talking about the difficulty in getting people on board with this, right? Like, they're trying to get people to move into Harrisburg, out from where they are. And we started talking about how hard it is, right? And as, as a leader, you, you like you get a little frustrated, or real frustrated. Uh, people aren't buying in. People aren't, what, whatever. And so they're sharing all these things, and I'm like laughing because, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm there, and I'm... Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, and I get it. And, and so we're sitting there talking, and he was like, I'm just trying to find, I need to find ways to get people down here. If I could just get them down here. And man, the spirit just like moved, and I just like heard. The Lord was just so clear. He was just like, do you really want people down here who aren't coming down here because of the gospel, because of their steadfast love for me? Do you really want people to be sacrificing because when we sacrifice, we do expect something in return. When we come down there, when we go into ministry, when we go into the mission field and we go, because we're sacrificing, we're just like the Pharisees and we'll feel a need to get recognition, right? We'll need to boost ourselves up and we'll need to talk about it. We'll need to get attention. We'll need to pray in public and show how much we're giving because we'll need other people because it's really not about what God's doing in our hearts, it's about getting approval from people or doing enough good things so God can see and so he'll do something for us. And I'm telling you that he wants something better. And as we're in our missional communities and over the last year we've been talking about, hey, how do we reach out? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we do this? Look, we could have a thousand different events up here, a thousand different trainings. We could go through a thousand different methods, but I'm gonna tell you there's only one thing that matters. Do you know the steadfast love of God? Are we pressing into this? Trust me, when we look at him, we will see the rest rightly. When we look at him, we will be led to sacrifice in ways that are beautiful and aren't about propping ourselves up. Man, I just want to call us. I'm calling myself. Let's press in. Let's press in that because of his steadfast love and because his steadfast love led him to sacrifice on our behalf, we can find rest in that. And, like when they pre- when Ben preached the other week, out of that rest, out of knowing intimately his steadfast love, we then have bravery. We then are tuned into what the Spirit is doing. Because I want us to know, like, as the Spirit is like, the Spirit is, like gone before us, he is the ultimate missionary. Right? He's doing work in our neighborhoods and in our communities long before we're there, and he'll continue it long after we're gone. He doesn't need us. He desires for us to know him. Because it's good for us. It's good for us. And I just just want us to press in. Like, forget all of our training. Forget all of the things that we're... Like, let's press into Christ together. I am 100% convinced that if we are pressing in, if we are drawing near, we will be transformed. We will be led to sacrifice. We will be filled with joy. No matter what's going on, life Death, it doesn't matter who's president, who's mayor, who's share. It, do- it doesn't matter. I want to go off on a rant, but do you know that Christianity thrived in a time where there wasn't democracy? In a time where the Christians were being thrown into lion den and oppressed and killed and murdered? People who didn't get to go on vacation on the weekend, who didn't get to take breaks, every two hours throughout their workday. And it was just as much real for them as it is for us. Our systems cannot save us. They're insufficient. The systems that we have point us to our need for Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's the hero. He's the one who can make it right. Let's press in together. Let's, let's press in.